Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.D.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for listening in and joining us. And as usual, we start off the show with our roundtable discussion and this month, I am joined by my co-host, John Caracella. Good morning. And Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning, Heisey. And the topic that I wanted to bring up was a, based on a blog post I happened to read recently. Um, and it was giving suggestions on how to how to open to what they call the current of your soul. And so the, the first question, actually, I'd like to just put out to you is that the term that they use is the soul current. And I'm wondering when you hear that, just what that means to you. Um, you know, instead of just hearing the word soul, when you hear soul current, what does that say or suggest or, or mean to you when you hear that? First of all, hi, see, I wanted to say I love your topic. I found it really relevant, especially today. So thank you for that. You were a, a little gift, a little gem came my way. And current of your soul, I find to me it means life force energy pulsing through you. And it feels very vibrant and alive and in the moment and active. I really, really liked that term. Just being there, being with your soul, having energy moving through you. Love it. Yeah, I think uh, that that's pretty much what I was thinking about too when when I was contemplating what is soul current. It it's the it's the soul maybe it's the divine masculine aspect of the soul, the motive force, the the uh the thing that makes you want to participate in some way uh in life. And the more of it you have, the more you want to participate. So that's kind of what it brought up for me. Well, when I saw that term, one thing I liked is the sense of movement, which really reminds us that we're not just a static being. We're not just who we were born as versus we're constantly growing and changing and evolving. And so I liked that idea of current when we think of water, of the the movement that is always happening rather than the stagnation or the static aspect. Um, and it also made me think, current also made me think of electricity and the idea of, you know, there, there's something that energizes and electrifies our soul. So it's that energy that runs through us, but also the energy that we can then send out of us. Um, and of course, there's even been scientific studies about the electromagnetic field that our heart generates and that is around us and that kind of thing. Um, so I also liked that term because it reminds us that we are a, a we are a self-generating force of energy that both runs through us and that we can then channel outward. So one of the things that they were commenting on, because the the idea of the blog was how to open to that current of your soul, um, what would you say is a way to recognize that we are perhaps 
disconnected or closed off to our own soul current? Well, for me, I think the, the clearest indication that I'm disconnected is when I am tired without being, without having uh, physically exhausted myself. Uh, and I'm not, um, and I'm feeling pinched. You know, I'm feeling not expanded. I'm feeling compressed. And that's usually a result of stress or anxiety. And I can just tell, like, because those are, they're, those are feelings are, are the first feelings that disappear when I am doing my yoga practice. When I'm, when I'm actually moving my body physically and breathing deeply, those feelings go away. I feel healthy and vital and vibrant, and I feel expanded and open. Uh, and I, it's such a feeling of well-being. So I know that when I'm not feeling those things, I'm feeling I get tired easily, you know, sleepy, droopy, or, or just a little crabby uh, because I don't have the energy to deal with things. I'm not connected to my soul current. I see, for me, I find if I'm out of my current, the current of my soul, my energy is all up in my head. And it's like I have, I'm carrying my head around and the rest of my body doesn't even exist. And the other characteristic when I'm not with my current is that I really focus in and it becomes like tunnel vision. So... Sometimes I catch myself doing that, and sometimes I don't catch myself. But a lot of the times, my body, as it speaks to me, is the first indication that I'm not in my current. So I've, I strive to train myself to listen to my body, because when I'm in that state, I, Mildred doesn't want to hear what the body has to say. Mildred wants to remain in her head and maintain that focus. But I know through experience, that's when I'm disconnected. And I also, to come back to the word current, you know, that's also a word that can mean something that is of the moment or present in this moment. And so it makes me think that if we're not connected to our soul current in some way, it usually is because we're either going over and over about the past or we're focused or worried about the future and we're not present. We're not current with where we are and who we are at this moment because we're worrying about something that is behind us or in front of us rather than right here, right now. I think that's really uh, a wise observation. And both Mildred Lynn and I, uh, in in the way we talked about it, um, referred to the nature of being present in our bodies, right? You know, me through the yoga practice and Mildred Lynn through feeling like she's all up in her head. Um the body is such a, a miraculous tool for putting us in the present moment. And if you're feeling your body, uh, you can't really be anywhere else because your body can only be in the present, which is really, really useful. And really, the, the idea of the focus on the body is about being conscious. And so there's a sense that we can consciously connect to that soul current. It's not, I mean, it can be something that just happens and we suddenly have a realization that we're in our soul's current, but we can also consciously connect to that current rather than thinking there's nothing we can do in order to connect with it or reconnect with it or be in alignment with it. Um, and in this blog post, they offered actually 10 different 
suggestions on ways to connect with your soul current. Um, I'm just going to read the 10 uh, tips that they gave. And then what I'd like for you to do is maybe just say which one or maybe two you feel really speak to you or really work for you. And then also maybe if there's one that you feel is the most difficult that you think takes extra effort to to do or to make happen in order to connect. Um, because sometimes if it's the most difficult one, it may be the thing we need to focus on the most because that may be what's getting in the way of us being always in alignment and connection with our soul current. So the, the 10 tips that this blog post gave um, is, uh, let's see, so there's number one is slow down, number two, breathe, number three, be kind, number four, journal, in the sense of keeping like a journal or something like that, number five, meditate, number six, trust, number seven, move your body, number eight, read uplifting books, number nine, connect to community, and number 10, love yourself unconditionally. So of those 10, which one or maybe two would you say you found are either easiest for you or really most successful for you in connecting to or staying in connection with your soul current? Well, for me, it, I mean, number two, breathe, and number seven, move your body. That's yoga. <laughs> so I, so those are, those are really natural ways for me to, you know, yoga and dance really uh, bring me into connection with my, you know, with the deeper part of myself that wants to be alive and present. For me, hi, see, I have four, and actually I put them all into action this morning. The four of them are slow down, breathe, trust, and move your body, and they worked wonderfully. And then of them, what do you think is one of the most difficult ones to do that takes a little bit extra effort or attention to actually put into practice? Oh, well, uh, for me... um, Meditating, well, really the things that take time, uh, like meditating, journaling, um, reading uplifting books, those things are are consumers of time. And so they have to be uh, prioritized in some way amongst all the other craziness. Um, But the actually the one I think that is the hardest for me uh, is connect to community because that requires both time and vulnerability, stepping outside of my, you know, of my daily habit or my daily routine and reaching out and connecting to people and investing time in relationships. Um, That's probably the hardest one because it takes the most time and the most effort of all of these. For me, I have the most resistance to journaling. I'm not a journaler. I've never been a journaler. And as I went through the list, I realized, I really see the value in journaling. Where I choose to go is a visualization. And I believe it's just the writing down that doesn't work for me because I would have that conversation that journaling would facilitate through a visualization that I can do. And I'm quite chatty in my visualization. (laughs) (laughs) That's a surprise to everybody I know. (laughs) Mildred Lynn, your visualizations are... Are uh, are they 
stories about how you want the world to unfold or how, what is well what they are basically with with the guidance of this blog it's talking about using a journal to maybe write a letter to god or whomever would be up on the food chain above you right <laughs> so when i do a visualization i connect with my higher self and have a direct conversation with my higher self back and forth and that's what i find fills the same role as the journaling. I could be completely wrong, but I know it's very satisfying and it brings me inner peace. Well, I think that one of the benefits of journaling that is different than what you may be getting from visualization is it allows you the opportunity to look back and to revisit because you may not remember a conversation or a vision that you had last year on Tuesday of November <laughs> and journaling and it doesn't have to just be writing you know I think people get a little stuck in that because nowadays especially with technology there's so many different ways to do it you know and just pick up your phone and, and record a voice memo as your journal so that you can go back and listen to it instead of having to write something down um, but that ability to go back and look later is often very beneficial and sometimes helps us to start connecting some dots or seeing a pattern because we can see, oh, look, this same thing came up over and over again or this same symbol seemed to reappear or I always this always seemed to happen or I was always feeling this way when this was going on in my life. So now I need to be more conscientious about when that kind of thing is happening. What am I doing for self-care rather than letting myself get caught up in that? So that, I think, is one of the big benefits of journaling, is that ability to look back as well as to have this longer span of information to look at to perhaps start to see bigger arcs or bigger patterns that start to emerge that we may not pick up when we're just in the moment on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I, I've recently discovered another um, really powerful element of journaling uh, that I didn't really realize, but uh, I know it's been talked about, but it, it, I never really hit home until I until it came into my awareness. And that is, it is a way to make manifest in this reality something that might just be a thought. And it's and it, you don't manifest it as in you know um, you you ask for uh, a puppy and a puppy appears, but. Um, when you t have the desire, you register the desire that you want to have a puppy, and then you actually translate it into something that, the, into ink and symbol on paper, you're suddenly taking it out of the domain of conscious reality, consciousness, and putting it in the, it in the domain of material reality simply by using ink and paper and symbol to make it appear. And I, it it really it's kind of an esoteric feeling when, I, when when it happens that way when when I when I write that way, but then I thought you know why do I sign and date certain things? Uh, and I realized that by dating it, I'm actually calling attention to this moment, and by signing it, I'm actually calling attention to the spirit, the soul that is making the expression. And I'm making those things manifest in this reality by using the pen and the ink and the symbols. 
and it's it's a really it was really kind of a cool connection that I had never made before. I, as I was listening to both of you, I I very much see the value in journaling, and I really liked what you had to say too, John. And I went back to my visualization, and I realized that as I have my conversation with my higher self in my visualization, the outcome of that conversation is action. There's usually one, two, or three action items. Yeah that I attend to using my body right. to do that. And that manifests that in the physical world for yeah. me. Just just sharing an alternative perspective. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, you when you when you really embody the experience of your visualization, that's manifesting in this reality too. You're vibrating you're vibrating that visualization into into this reality through your body. So as we move towards the conclusion of our conversation what would be one thing that you would suggest to people that they could do on this very day to connect or reconnect to their soul current? For me, Hi C, I would suggest to slow down. And it's only two little words, and they each have four little letters, and they can make all the difference in the world because I experienced it this morning slow down yeah and and uh i would suggest be kind because you can't go wrong being kind and it will feed your soul and it it'll it'll en- enliven you with um just the just the right kind of perfect balance positive goodness and i think not just to be kind to others but to also be kind to yourself, to be gentle with yourself versus treating yourself differently than the way that you would treat those around you. Mm. So I want to say thank you to my co-hosts for having been willing to have this little discussion. And I also wanted to mention that the blog post that I saw that that this discussion was based on was uh, written by Michael Brazell, and you can find it at his website, um, soulinteraction.com. And so thank you to John Carousella. Mm, pleasure. And to Mildred Lynn McDonald. Happy to be here, hi And stay tuned. Coming up is my guest for this month, Indigo Ronlov, who is a priestess, alchemical healer, and also the founder and executive director of the Zara Foundation. And also, if you would like to get a reading later in the show, you can do that and get into the queue by Skyping in from the show page or calling 646-716-5510. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Now I'm walking down an alley. Now I'm talking spirituality. We got one eye on the future and the other on the morning. And the feeling goes down when we switch on the channel So overfed with the terrible flannel Try to switch off my hair, use my soul instead So I get ahead of the things I said There's a soul, 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 soul Everywhere, it's everywhere, everywhere Soul, soul, everywhere
cheap And I have learned that love is deep God gave me my soul to keep So I took love a whole big hip And I will not point a finger So it's timeless and will linger I keep my own words down So I won't drown This one more time don't hinder There's a soul Revolution with host Ticey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with C. Enjoy the show. I hope you're as excited for this month as I am. The long-awaited Uranus Pluto Square. Now, most astrologers love to bemoan this transit as being disruptive and possibly catastrophic. This, to me, is a lack of imagination, an unreasonable attachment to maintaining a status quo that has deeply entrenched inequalities within it, defaulting to a socially constructed idea of human nature, little realizing that even within our biological limits, there is a great deal of flexibility in our natures, and being on the wrong side of history. What all we see is evidence of a social matrix that systematically denies the implications of the existential threats facing us and willfully continues to perpetuate a business-as-usual model of affairs. It becomes the responsibility of those affected to rebel and innovate and come up with new ways of being human. If we fail to make it through this transition and act collectively to address the reality fast impressing itself upon us, there may not be a culture left to salvage, not to mention it could be a major setback for our species, in that we will no longer be wearing the mantle of technical civilization and could quite possibly be extinct. I realize this is sounding dire and heavy-handed. Consider this a wake-up call and consider the Uranus-Pluto square occurring this month as a crucial time to figure out what your personal role is in the transition from a culture of denial to one that is willing to deal with reality on its terms and recognize that screwing with nature's operating system is very bad for business and also presents grave risks to our further existence here as a species. Which brings me to selective pressure. The final Uranus-Pluto square of 2014 arguably eclipses almost every aspect of the month. Granted, there are considerable aspects that will touch off the square and amplify its long-range effects clean into 2015. December 12th, Mercury will trine Jupiter. If the conjunction with the Sun wasn't enough, Mercury then makes harmonious aspect to the cosmic magnifying glass. Communicating big, far-reaching ideas becomes the norm over the next few days of this transit. 
whether these ideas be for personal benefit or societal transformation, now signals a time when they may be heard by larger audiences. Two days following that, on December 14th, the Sun will trine with Jupiter, the individual as an institution, a time to remind and empower ourselves that an individual conspiring with many others can truly make a big difference on the matters that count, advancing the human project forward. This, of course, is followed a day later, on December 15th, by the much-anticipated Uranus-Pluto square, Innovate or Die, the Uranus-Pluto square. We cannot go on living as though there are no natural laws or limits to our resource base, nor can go on denying the impact our behavior is having. We are quite literally changing our world with the power of a force of nature and not to our benefit, which would have some logic to it but to our detriment, which is ultimately suicidal. We must face facts. We have placed ourselves as gods on this planet, so we had better get good at it, to quote the words of Stuart Brand. We must innovate or die, and we needed to do it yesterday. We are intelligent enough that we can use our genius to adapt to these inevitable changes and act to stem the worst. The situation, however, is not hopeless. We still can prevent the worst from happening if we act now. We have to explore every single option, even the controversial ones, and hope that we are not left with geoengineering as our only option left. It is quite literally a race to save civilization, as well as an evolutionary catalyst to completely redesign it, and potentially our species. Here's the basic interpretation of this square adapted for our times and the crises we are facing. Our need to innovate radical solutions is confronted by the pressing evolutionary issues of our current crisis. If we fail to do, our systems will either topple by slamming into physical limits, or be severely compromised, or be completely changed through unrest and rebellion. Or corollarily, our society will rise phoenix-like from the ashes of this crisis, this long emergency, through a combination of dealing with selective pressures as presented by climate change and various other societal bifurcations, we emerge an ecotechnic civilization, fully carbon neutral with an array of technologies that have enabled our species to live on this planet in balance with its life support systems. A species rapidly evolving and transcending the limitations of its own evolution. That same species making its way to the stars, spreading the virus of life across the vast abyss, making first contact with other deep stellar civilizations, creating its first colonies on other planets, said to be shamanizing amongst the stars, and ultimately merging with the universe itself. Personally, I'm choosing option two because it beats going back to the Dark Ages, and I'd like to see our young species make it to true planetary adulthood. On December 24th, with Mercury squaring Uranus, System failure, temporary setbacks to our modern technologies, perhaps overconfidence in communicating their true reach, leading to misperceptions. Watch out for unsupportable claims, because remember that all innovations usually take five to ten years to make it to a meaningful impact on the masses. A good time to beef up protections regarding your computers and other devices. The Internet is a wild ecology and still requires one to keep their wits about them. Christmas Day, December 25th, Mercury conjuncts Pluto. 
a need to communicate with a sense of urgency as our communication systems are swept up in a need to broadcast very pressing matters and are confronted with potentially troubling or transformative realities. It's a time where communications that could change everything are primed to occur. Choose words very carefully. They can have deep impact that could change everything. Boxing Day, as it's known in my native Canada, is December 26th, and the sun will sextile Neptune on that day. Remember that reason is always the more difficult proposition, and under these auspices, we'll often go to sleep. It can be very easy to fall for a deceptively inspiring argument, except it means nothing if the evidence is non-existent. Word to the wise, question everything, especially the veracity of anything you hear over the next week. Someone or some institution could be pulling a fast one using a smoke and mirrors technique. On the other hand, it could also be a time when spirituality comes into focus and we begin to think of our, our transpersonal connections and how we, are, how we are enmeshed into each other, even if only through the, the chain of cause and effect. That's it for December, space travelers. So gird your loins and helmets on as we blast into hyperspace, or just a new year, with many exciting changes in store. Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable changemakers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. guest this month is Indigo Ronlove, an eco-psychologist, minister, alchemical healer, and founder and executive director of the Zara Foundation. The Zara Foundation facilitates and teaches workshops and educational opportunities about the value and importance of creating with one's own hands, especially when made from repurposed and reclaimed materials, and the positive ecological effects this can have on the environment culture, and family. They are currently f focusing their efforts in Egypt, 
and hold the intention to expand to Central and South America as well as Canada. By encouraging the reclamation for certain discarded items as a raw material for art and crafts, there is a unique opportunity to reinstill the quickly vanishing values of historical hand craftsmanship. This also encourages a greater consciousness around how people think about garbage, how they consume, and how consumption affects the planet on a larger scale. Indigo Ronlove initiated the Zara Foundation as a part of her service learning degree requirement for her master's degree in eco-psychology at Naropa University. She quickly realized that something of consequence was happening. She now carries Zara forward into the future, holding the intention to spread it to wherever it is needed. In addition to Zara, Indigo is a minister of her walking prayer with the Center for Sacred Studies, an alchemical healer, and a medicine woman. It is Indigo's intention to live life in service to the healing of our planet and all that reside there. In this, she offers her services in person in Eugene, Oregon, and by phone or Skype for eco-psychology, healing sessions, spiritual guidance, alchemical healing and mentoring, and for the creation of ceremony. She welcomes the opportunity to work with those seeking to awaken their innate healing potential. Being dedicated to holding space as a sacred witness, Indigo guides the unfolding of that which needs healing, creating the space for physical, spiritual, and emotional health to take root. You can find out more about Indigo and what she offers at www.sacredwitness.us. So please join me in welcoming to the show this month's revolutionary guest, Indigo Ronlove. And welcome to the show, Indigo. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Heisey. And I hope that you have survived. I know you live in Oregon. The the rains and the storms that they predicted would come through and practically be an apocalypse, which really just ended up being rain. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it never really is the apocalypse. It only is just another storm. And it passed, and some branches came, and some water came, and, and I think most are okay. And isn't it isn't it something we could apply to our life? It never is the apocalypse, and that storm will pass. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just show up and and see what's needed, and move into it, and pretty soon you'll be into something else. That's right. Yeah. So um, I thought I wanted to just maybe start by having you explain a little bit about some of the the titles that I tossed out there of the things they do. Um, maybe explain to people what it is, what, what is eco-psychology? Um, well, in a very, very bare essence of a way, eco-psychology is basically looking at the intersection between the psyche, ecology, and spirit. And it says that humanity is the cross-section of these three things. And when we live on the planet in a way that has a disconnection from the nature or from the spirit, that uh, 
disassociation and a dis-ease happens within our psyche. And um, stuff happens like it's going on on the planet right now. We can see it in our news and, and all over the Internet and in our families. So eco-psychology looks to mend that, looks to use nature and spirit to bring a, a greater connectivity um, to ourselves and to our families, our communities, and the planet and all the creatures on this planet with whom we live here with. Does that make sense? That's eco-psychology in a nutshell. Uh, which was what you – and that's actually a field of study that you it studied is. at Naropa University. It is. It is, in fact. It's a branch of transpersonal psychology. Um, transpersonal psychology really looks at bridging spirit and psyche and generalizing in great big ways. But um, And then the eco-psychology takes it a step further and brings in the ecology, the nature, the, um, the earth from where we all come from. And is eco-psychology something that is more broad-based or is it something that can also be done? When you hear that word psychology, you think of like, sitting in a room with a psychologist. Uh, is it something that can be done on, on that one-on-one -on -one kind of level, or is it something that's more geared towards that broader application? You know, it's really both, um, because there are a lot of practices that are nature practices that are taking a client out either in their own journey world in the inner landscape or physically out into the nature of their world, whether it's the backyard or uh, a mountain trail um, or whatever, depending on where they live, that there's great deal of healing that can happen um, through that connection or reconnection or that, um, yeah, deepening of, of the realization that we all come from this earth and we're all going to end up back in it when, when we're done with this life. So, so yeah, it's very much a one-on-one -on -one thing. And then while I was studying for my master's degree in eco-psychology, I took it to a more global level and looked at, well, how does humanity as a whole interface with the planet and what practices are we regularly engaged in that disconnect us or that we're just so mindless about because... Um, it's how we operate that we don't even think about it. It's just it's how it is, but really that there's a, a disconnect there and there's different ways that we can interface with ourselves and our communities and our planet that bring greater healing to the whole. And that's where the Zahra Foundation came out of is through that inquiry. So, yeah. um, and, and another thing that, that you offer is alchemical healing. Um, yeah. Can you maybe just explain a little bit about what that is? Alchemical Healing was brought together um, by a woman named Nikki Scully, and it it is shamanic in a sense. It's it's energy work in a sense. It's um, the best way to describe it is uh, I, as an alchemical healer, am not so much the healer. My job is to work with the person who has come to me and to help guide them through their own healing. Um, in shamanic work, uh, people will go and journey and bring back information for the client, which can be very profound and powerful. In alchemical healing, we seek to help enrich the client's own visionary states so that they begin to um, create relationships with the guides and allies and elements and plants that can assist them as they go through life. 
So that's alchemical healing. And um, it's something that um, there's a number of practitioners around the world, actually. And then there are some teachers, a few, a handful of teachers of which I'm one. And now I know that um, Nikki Scully also leads trips to Egypt and has and does a lot of work specifically around the Egyptian mysteries. And yeah. you also have a very deep connection and love to Egypt. Um, did Thank that come you. about through your work with Nikki Scully? It did. It did come about because of the work with Alchemical Healing. One of the main guides when we begin to work with alchemical healing is Thoth, and he is um, from the Egyptian pantheon, the ibis-headed deity, and he's very wise, and if you think of a, an ibis, or depending on where you are, a crane or a heron, the way they are so thoughtful, thoughtful as they stand in their water waiting for that moment, but when it's time to act, they are precise and fast. And he's kind of like that, you know. He he knows much from recording all the deeds of all that has been. So um, through him and through Nikki, then I went to Egypt in 2012. There was a trip to uh, Cairo and Luxor and Aswan um, with Alex and Allison Gray. And I met Egypt and fell in love with the land there um, and have gone back several times since then. So... Um, and, uh, you know, I, I would say my connection to the Egyptian pantheon is, in fact, very deep, but I am also a mere infant in the study of this um, civilization and uh, symbols and archetypes and um, alchemy from, how, you know, however many thousands and thousands of years that they've been here. So, yeah. And, and when, you, when you think back to that first trip, what was that experience like when you landed on the soil of Egypt? And what was that experience of Egypt like for that very first time? Well, the first time my feet were on the ground, like not in the airport, but actually on the ground of Egypt, it was like, ah, oh, you know, that like deep feeling of satisfaction and um, coming to a place of presence and perfection. And then as we moved through the land, you know, I'm like, wow, wow. I said, wow, I think probably a million times from the beginning to the end of that trip, because everywhere I looked, I was astounded with the color and the culture and the monuments and the the sheer vastness of some of these temples and the work it would have taken to carve and paint it to the exquisite nature that it is. I mean, it's so amazing. It's so amazing. And I, I don't have the same, wow, that open-eyed, like, blown away sense when I go there now. But the wow has deepened into it, like, wow, yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, good. it's good. And and since that first setting of your foot on Egyptian soil to mm-hmm. now, um, how would you say that Egypt has altered your life and your life's path from where it was before you went there to the current time since having been there? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, It's changed a lot of things. My family, for one, has had to compensate for me being gone. Uh, My husband and I have two boys uh, who are 17 and 8, so there's that juggling of how do I travel halfway around the world and have this um, new kind of career, life um, experience, offering all of those things and 
still be true to being mom and being here. So there's there's that juggling. And and it's opened my mind to the world in a way that I never knew was possible. It's blown away any preconceived notions I had of another culture. And I've had experience of other people of other culture, but not to such an intimate degree. Um, this last trip just um, a month ago, I was in Baharia Oasis and had the opportunity to work with a woman there, and she invited her some of her family and some other women. There was six of them and two of us, myself and my traveling companion, Jacqueline. And we got to spend two afternoons in her home in this oasis in the middle of the desert, um, sharing and laughing and talking, and we didn't have any common language. The only language we had to share was our hands and the handwork that um, we were sharing, because they already knew how to crochet, but I showed them the little trick of cutting up the plastic bag into, voila, one long piece of plastic uh, flarn, it's called. And we were working away, crocheting away, and I um, was so touched at their humility and their community. It's unlike anything I've ever experienced as an American on the West Coast here in Oregon. You know, I have a pretty good community in Oregon, but not like that. And when they came in and we all became comfortable, those that were wearing a full veil, suddenly the veil was off, and we were all just women, (laughs) just women doing our thing. And um, I never imagined to be in that kind of experience. Five years ago, I had no idea that I would have the opportunity to become... um, community with these women halfway around the world who have a very different lifestyle and a very different worldview and, you know, have varying degrees of education and all of that. But they were amazing people, and I look forward to going back to work with them again soon. And how, what have you found or how have you found the experience to be of being a woman in Egypt, which is a primarily Muslim country? I would say that like anywhere in the world, it's important to be aware of your surroundings and to not put yourself into situations that are potentially dangerous, as my dog is barking. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Um, And so when I'm in Egypt, I'm aware that I am a woman in a culture that has varying degrees of conservative views around women and and I um, adjust myself accordingly and at the same time the Egyptian people are so warm and generous and welcoming and excited to share what they have there so um, it's just about being careful I would be careful as a woman walking alone in any large metropolitan metropolitan city so it's it's no different there um, I think for me, in the first part of the show, in our roundtable, we were talking about the soul's current. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think for me, when, when I connected with Egypt, it was as if I found that the current for my soul, it's like, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Nile of my soul uh, yes. kind of came to the fore and really said, ah, okay, now I see um, where is, and and it doesn't have to just be, I mean, yes, Physically in modern day Egypt is is one thing, but I think also more of the 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 idea of Egypt and, and the, the bigger aspect of Egypt through, throughout time as well as that that bigger current 
that ha has been really connective for me. There's a sort of cosmic Egypt and an inner Egypt that are both accessible as well as the actual physical land and country of Egypt that is here now. Both are, both yes. are true. So, and you were speaking of the women you were working with there, and so that um, is related to the Zara Foundation. Exactly, um, yeah. The, the, the first thing I'd like to ask, actually, is what does the name Zara mean? Well, Zara means bright or white or blossom or clean or purify. And um, in the Egyptian spice markets, there'll be these stalls filled with all kinds of different spices. And they'll have this blue powder that's there, and it's that blue powder that you put in with your whites to make them brighter, right? And uh, and so that that is a, that Zara is using that blue powder to make it whiter. And at one point, um, a guide told me that my name Indigo was Zahra because he was equating that powder as indigo. They'll call it indigo powder in the spice shops too, um, in English. And uh, and I thought that was odd. I'm like, well, indigo, isn't that a dark blue? And doesn't that make that a lot brighter? Yeah. But then as this, was, this work was manifesting and I was researching and doing everything that it took to bring it into being, um, it occurred to me that the Zahra, that Zahra is what we're looking to do. We're looking to brighten and clean and buy, to, to take something that wasn't so good, like a, a discarded plastic bag blowing through the Egyptian desert and turning it into something beautiful that has potential to uh, empower the women to make a little extra money. You know, because doing a little handwork when you're home with your husband at the end of the day or, you know, if you're watching TV or while you're watching the children, there's there's plenty of time that um, hands can be busy uh, and profit can be made for them that then in turn become good for the land, for the environment. So, yeah. Um so, so how did and now you've done uh, five trips to Egypt so far? You've you've primarily focused on Egypt initially with this foundation, um, and so how did these five trips and what you're now doing? How did that grow out of what you were doing in your masters and and become? Is this kind of like this was your thesis that the foundation basically was your thesis? It, it was. I have to um, for my master's degree. I had to have a thesis that I was focusing on, and I had to also do a service learning project and so just because I do a lot of service in my community as it is I volunteer in a lot of ways for different groups that I needed to up the ante on myself and make it a little more complicated so I created a service organization rather than just volunteering for one and that's what became the Zaha Foundation my um, thesis was is titled the eco-psychology of handwork and in that paper, I explore the connection between um, mass production, the excess of waste, especially of plastic, and the loss of handwork, and how re-stimulating everywhere in the planet, as far as I'm concerned, but places like Egypt that have um, specifically had traditional strong handwork communities to re-inspire that as a um, really important sustainable thing for us to do because you can make a million plastic things out of a factory somewhere um, or you can take three days and make a, a beautiful hand-woven basket but the 
billion plastic ones are never going to become Earth again, and they're going to be waste for the future humans, the future inhabitants of this planet, and we're leaving a big mess for them. Um, so I'm looking at how can we mitigate that mess for the future ones? How can we turn it into something that at least has a little longer shelf life than a single-use plastic bag or a water bottle or something like that? Yeah, I was looking up some statistics, and I know this is a, a little bit old, but I saw it like in 2009, just in the U.S. alone, <laughs> there was uh, about 30 million tons of plastic were generated uh, within that year in the United States, and only about 7%, about 2 million tons of that were able to be recovered for recycling purposes and that kind of thing. And you know, I I actually titled this show Garbage Consciousness. Yes, I and, that. <laughs> and I'm wondering how how do we help bring about a greater consciousness in people of, regarding the the amount of garbage that is generated even on a personal level and mm -hmm. how do we become more conscious and conscientious about seeing it in a different way and and using it in a different way? That's a big question because, you know, in places like where I live in Eugene, you know, I put the can down at the street and it gets taken away never to be seen again. But it's still here. It's still a problem. It goes and it's being made into a mountain down the street, basically, is what they're doing with the city's trash. And um, in Egypt and other places in the world, they don't have the same kind of tidy infrastructure to make sure it's taken away from our homes and not seen it. And so you see it in the landscape in a much more um, in-your-face way. But uh, I often share with people when I'm talking to them in Egypt that I, I don't think that Egypt has a trash problem. I think the planet has a trash problem, and different places deal with it in different ways. Um, you know, there's this island of plastic that's collecting in the Pacific that's becoming its own, it'll be its own continent before too long. Um, and so what do we do? I think that what we do is we have to each be aware that every choice that we make creates what's going to be, what's going to be tonight, what's going to be tomorrow, what's going to be, you know, 200 years from now when seven generations hopefully have had the opportunity to, to prosper on this planet. And making our choices has to be about, you know, are we buying something because it's quick and easy and because it's time for that gift that you just need to give, although the gift is a beautiful thing, if it's some piece of trash that's going to break before too long and end up in the street or in the refuse mountain or, you know, filling the valleys, then maybe it's not the right gift or um, choosing something that's made by someone locally in your community um, or something that you, in fact, have made yourself, um, those kind of choices go a long way to shifting it, even in a small way. Um, we, we, as general and generalizing, we as a society and a culture and a humanity tend to overconsume, and we, um, we want to be distracted and entertained at all times. And so um, there's a lot of garbage that comes out of that distraction and that entertainment. So, you know, maybe somehow all of us taking a bigger breath and, and going outside and looking at the clouds for a little while <laughs> rather than um, going and buying the latest, greatest gadget. 
So, well, and, and how do we do that on a mass scale? I don't know. I'm I'm trying to do it in a little way in villages in Bahareya and at home here in Eugene and wherever I can. Um, on a bigger way, it's up to each person to make to make a choice to choose how they spend and to choose, you know, how much packaging is in what they buy and and then to choose how they deal with that packaging once they bring it home. Well, yeah, and I think that that's important for people to to think, you know, I think a lot of times people feel overwhelmed when they hear of the, you know, 30 million tons and what can I do about that as one person, you know, and kind of thing. But it's it's also understanding that it starts at the small level. And mm-hmm. if individuals or communities start to do something, that starts to then spread out and become something bigger and something bigger. And so if people would just, like you were saying, be more conscious and conscientious about their own personal choices, that will start to at least make a small difference, even if it's not changing the world just in that moment. (laughs) Um, But, you know, that and sometimes not being afraid to endure the raised eyebrow of somebody else when you say that you won't purchase something or you won't use something because you recognize yeah. the amount of waste that it has. And some people are like, oh, you know, stop being such a hippie or stop being so politically correct yeah, or yeah, stop yeah. being so, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, sometimes you have to be willing to say, well, if you don't have those same values, then that's okay, but I'm not going to necessarily not try to make it known that I have these values, which hopefully might inspire somebody else to at least think, you know? You know, I have a little story about that. It's it's kind of, it, it, just along those lines. So just in this last trip, I was in a local market to buy some food to um, to bring home and have for preparing meals. And at this particular market, they, for every, even if it's a single mango or uh, one lime, they would put it in a plastic bag and put a sticker with the weight on it. And I asked her to put the sticker on the mango. I didn't want her to put the mango in a bag and then put the sticker on the bag. I'm like, you can just stick it on the mango. It was beyond her um, mindset to do that. That was, well, no, we have to do it this certain way. And so I let it go. You know, I'm in a different culture. I'm trying to convey with um, without the language, shared language. And um, But then I came back a little later with two separate kinds of fruit and it was a guava, and um, I can't remember what the other one was, but two different pieces. And she looked at me, and she weighed each of them separately, and then she put them both into one bag with both stickers, right? And so what that told me is she she got it. She got that I didn't want the plastic bags. She also wasn't going to step outside of her um comfort or her, you know, what she was supposed to do as an employee of this market. But she altered her behavior just a little bit so that I didn't have two plastic bags at that point, and I had only one. So it it was a small, small, small thing, but just because I held and asked and tried to push forward this idea of, well, let's put the sticker straight on the fruit, um, she shifted her behavior just a little bit. And, and, and just... You know, well, and, and just in that one small shift, it reduced her what could have been a potential amount of waste by 50%. Exactly. You know, and, and I think that's what we can't underestimate just by being willing to ask or be ourselves or mention these things. Because sometimes, sure, somebody isn't going to go suddenly from, you know, all waste to no waste overnight. 
But yeah. even if we can influence them to reduce a little bit or to be more conscientious so that they use a little bit less, yeah. the more we do that, the less that gets generated. You know, and, and that's where I, you know, try to encourage people that don't get overwhelmed by the big global aspect of it versus just that one little change can start to have an actual impact in a real way. Um, And, you know, and something else you said, which is about thinking about a year and a hundred years and all of that into the future. In some ways that challenges even what's kind of become a very popular, for lack of a better word, new age type of thinking, which Mm -hmm. is about, um, you know, being in the present moment and living for the now and all of that. And and we've almost started to do that too far yeah. to too much of a degree because we we have completely lost sight of the fact that there's anything about the future that we need to consider because we're supposed to be so focused in the present that but if we our don't... present actions are detrimental to any potential people in the future then then how are we being mindful in the present how is that being spiritually active that's a good question uh, well right and and so it's it's you know, it's it's kind of what happens when certain ideas become mainstream as they lose the underlying true essence and meaning of what they're about. <laughs> um, and I think that that's what's been lost is that idea of being in the present moment is also being mindful, which doesn't doesn't exclude thinking about the future and what the present, how that can impact the future, but it's gotten so kind of diluted and watered down. And I think especially like in American culture where it's all about, you know, I want this in this moment. It's all about instant gratification and, you know, I've got to enjoy this now. And we almost encourage disposability, Um, you know, and uh, an example that I was thinking of um, as well, I was with some people, we were walking around and we passed one of those stores that's like a Christmas store, you know, where they sell all the Christmas stuff just around the season. And as we're walking by, one of the people says, oh, we should go in here so I can get some Christmas shit. You'll pardon my language. Yeah, but I immediately thought, why? what is the benefit, value, and enjoyment of just going in and buying something that has no meaning or value to you that you just want to use because it's kind of like we're supposed to or it's kitschy or it's cute or whatever, but it's like you're going to buy it, put it up for a week or two, and then throw it away. And throw it away. Halloween is like that. Halloween is atrocious oh, yeah. in that way. You think of the amount of plastic consumer one-use things that come out of that holiday in America, and the United States of America specifically, is is atrocious. <laughs> it, but, but we do. We have that consumer throwaway mentality. Oh, get it, use it, don't need it, walk, walk forward, don't see it anymore because it's all shipped away into a nice, convenient mountain that we don't see. Um it's, and, it's and a I'm, tricky one to shift. Boy, it's hard. And, you know, it's, it's an important thing that I've looked at. It's almost a conundrum in a way because the work I'm doing with Zahra is encouraging them to use a byproduct of our consumption, the single-use plastic bag, I, that I want to go away. I don't want that to be ever manufactured on this planet again if that were to be my druthers. Yet it is in many places, and I'm encouraging them to use it and to create income out of it, and I also want it to go away. So there's a, it's almost like a, a Zen koan in a way that I go around <laughs> and around. So I want to discontinue plastic, and I want the women to make things with the plastic, and I'm making things with the plastic, and yet 
again, it's the small bits. When there's no more plastic, then then we've done a good thing. Then we've, right. we've, um, we've stopped a, a stream that never breaks back down into the earth again. And I, I almost feel, and maybe you can speak to this just from what you've seen in your travels, I almost feel like that's one of the almost horrible things that we've kind of exported as a U.S. culture or maybe a Western culture is that idea of disposability. Because it seems like so many other cultures really never had that idea, but we have kind of brought that in to them as we've exported our ideals and consumer goods and all of that, but created that mentality in places where it probably didn't exist. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, once upon a time you would see the I bring it back to the baskets because it's a good example where the handcrafted basket that were used for everything in daily life, you know, were available by the specific basket makers, you know. And and now you see these plastic things that have been molded in a factory probably in China or somewhere like that uh, in mass quantities and they're sold for mere pennies, um, I may be exaggerating, but for very cheap, and and the hand-woven baskets aren't there anymore. So now then you see the broken plastic baskets sitting in the heaps of garbage, you know, because they won't ever break back down and become earth, whereas the hand-woven ones, when it broke, it would get composted. It would become the dirt that the vegetables would grow in. Um, now in many places in the world, it's, you know, the, the garbage heaps are right next to the canals that water the fields, and it's it's sad, really. And it doesn't break down because there's so much plastic in it. There's nothing that's compostable. And do do you find that there is still both an interest and a knowledge of how to do those handcrafts, um, at least in Egypt? Or do you find there's resistance where people will say, well, why, why learn that? I can just go down and buy one. You know, I, the women I've worked with are really excited by it. Um, the Zaha Foundation gives a hook or two, depending, a couple hooks, different sizes, and a pair of scissors to each woman that we work with. And then that gives them the tools they need to do anything with the crochet. And then it's up to them to collect the plastic bags. And the plastic bags are free. They're everywhere. And they have the choice to ask their family and ask their neighbors to save the bags so they don't even go into the garbage stream at all. They just they they are kept out of that, or to collect the bags that are blowing in the wind. There's, you know, I've noticed that there's different levels of garbage in the world. There's the the garbage like here in America that gets hauled away and covered with big sheets and piped and you know maintained. And then there's um, there's garbage that's filled with all sorts of rotting, nasty stuff. And then there's garbage that's blown through the wind like in the desert in Egypt. It's like a tumbleweed only. It's a tumble bag. And those bags can be rinsed very easily and used. Um, and there's, I mean, I don't, I have no number of how many are out there. Thousands of bags blowing in the wind in the deserts in a, any given day. Um, so there's a lot of material out there that they can use without having a lot of effort and without having to put any money out because co- um, cotton thread or wool threads, yarns are all, they cost money. You know, they have to put money out to be able to use those materials. And it makes a really beautiful, sturdy product. And um, the women and I, this last time in Bahareya, have uh, 
come up with a good water bottle design that um, they are now working on. And we will be selling those water bottles, uh, holders, the water bottle holders to um, tour companies in Egypt who can then give them to their tour participants when they come. Welcome to Egypt. Here's your bottle of water and a handy water bottle holder that they can um, then carry with them as they travel through the monuments and temples and such. Um, so that was established in our last visit, and it's very exciting. And it was really, really fun to sit and work with the women making these bottle holders, and they are so excited to do it and and totally into it. Um, when we go back to Egypt in March, the Zara Plantation is returning. We'll go back to Bahareya and have a larger workshop um, where we'll have a room in the government building in the city center and invite uh, any women from the area who want to come join us. So, um, you know, in in my perhaps very realistic dreams of this, these women can form a co-op of their own, and um, once the lines of trade have been established, they can take it on and have their own little micro-business. And Zara has done its good work, and we can go to the next area and see how we can help empower the women there. Um, and I, what was it that made you specifically focus on working with women in particular? Well, I, you know, this is always kind of a tricky conversation. I, I want to say up front, I'm not necessarily a feminist, or I, I just see in the world that we have a patriarchal overlay, and that in many places in the world, such as Egypt, the the feminine has. Um, uh, maybe less priority, that's one way to say it, depending on where you are. That's a very kind thing to say. Um, and so I um, I want to be able to empower the women. I think that the intuitive, creative aspects of the feminine, whether it's the feminine within a man or the feminine within a woman, are essential for the health of this planet. And we've had these very analytical, logical control-oriented modes of operation on this planet for a very long time. Um, so empowering the women to feel good about themselves and to feel good about what they're doing is going to help them feel good about their families and their relationships and their communities. And I think that if women across the planet were feeling in their own selves the respect that they deserve, um, maybe things will start shifting you know maybe maybe that empowerment in a small way will will help that um more passive gentle soft creative aspects of the feminine and i again i'm not specifying gender i'm merely talking to the archetypal qualities of the feminine and the masculine um that maybe yeah things are going to shift a little bit and our planet is going to just take a breath of relaxation and and not be on such a hyperdrive um, to get somewhere where we have no real destination, um, but to to find out how to create healthy situations for our families and our children and and the future ones who aren't here here yet. So that's my hope. And, and I think if we take that that symbol of the the feminine and the the woman as the one who gives birth, that by working with women, perhaps that helps to birth this new way of thinking that then can be, you know, raised into other people and spread out into other people as well. 
Well, and it's important, too, in in traditional culture, um, and again, I'm speaking generally, in traditional culture, the women would teach the children how to do the handwork. Um, and, you know, when we're dealing with making tools or, or working the ground, things shift a little bit. But, like, the making of the cloth, the, the spinning of the yarn, the, um, the clothes, the, those kind of things, the basketry, um, often the women would teach the children. And so by um, reaching into the population of uh, women in specifically in Bahareya and, and some places in Cairo right now, then as they grow, they're going to teach their children how to do it. And then their children will teach their children and so on and so on. Um, so as you've been going over on your trips and, and um, doing this work, have you met any resistance as a woman have you met any resistance trying to go in and do these things? Uh, it makes me think because, for example, you know, we uh, offer live readings and things here. And one time a woman from Jordan, the country of Jordan, called in. Mm-hmm. And she was trying to start her own business, but she was running into all sorts of obstacles as a woman. And she was wondering whether she needed to partner with a man who could just be kind of the front for her mm-hmm. business because that way it would be more socially acceptable and that kind of thing. So I'm just curious if you've run into any challenges just because you're a woman trying to come in and do this kind of work um, in in the the culture that is there? Yeah. Well, I I recognized early on that to be able to access, and I I, I, I speak in generalities. I'm just going to make that disclaimer up front. So to access the women, I needed to go through the men. And so I've developed some relationships with some of the men there, colleagues, ships, I should say, with the men there who some, like anywhere in the world, some men will meet me as a human. Some men will meet me as a woman. Um, And some of those men who meet me as a woman, depending on where their level of relationship with women are, changes. And that's very true in Egypt. Some, I've been offered many, many camels for my hand in marriage as I just walk down the street in Egypt. It's very common. Hey, lady, I give you, you know, 500 camels. And I said, no, no, gold. It has to be gold. <laughs> um, and they are like, oh, too much. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so off I go. But, you know, that's, there is that that happens there. Um, but I've been fortunate to meet some really amazing humans um, who happen to be men and who happen to see me as a human, and we've been able to make business together. And they've helped open some doors for me to reach into, um, reach deeper into the communities. And, and then what I found in Bahrain specifically is, you know, the the man opened the door, but then I had to meet the women, and they had to accept me. It wasn't so much about the men um, controlling it. It was about whether the women wanted to engage with me and learn with me and do this work with me. And um, and in fact, I learned that they do. And and so once that happened, then um, it wasn't about you know whether the men could. Um, you know, engage in my process or not. They just uh, are seeing it happening and helping to make it happen. And they're also seeing the benefit um, for the people in a good way. So um, so I'm getting support because of that. And I think, too, because I'm not going at this as a business. I mean, this truly is a service thing. And um, I hope that everyone who engages with the Zahra Foundation can benefit from it in one way or another. And uh, I, I'm not 
in it to get something except for, you know, a greater um, a, a greater way for us as humans to walk on the planet. I mean, in a, in a big way, I would like us to interface with our planet in a, in a new and enlightened way, in a way that I, I think humanity can and perhaps even should be able to do at this point in our evolution. And we're still struggling, so... And, you know, of course, for, I think for a lot of people, when they hear Egypt, what they really hear is ancient Egypt. <laughs> Some people probably forget there's a modern Egypt because we're so inundated by that ancient Egypt idea. Um, but how would you say that the work you're doing connects to the people and the civilizations of the past and draws from that and how it's going to be able to use that to then inform the future? I don't know. The first thing that comes to mind, I don't know if this totally answers your question, but um, the myths of ancient Egypt, the stories that have been passed down through the ages, originated somewhere. And some of them perhaps originated um, from real people that did real things, and those stories got embedded, or, or many different people who have similar attributes that kind of over time got viewed as ISIS for example. Um, I think that we're myth makers today as well. I think that we as humans have the opportunity to be co-creators, conscious co-creators. We already are co-creators with every breath, with every step, with every action, with every choice we are creating the future. We have the opportunity to be conscious co-creators. And Egypt is a is a powerful place to to manifest and uh because the myths are so old and because the the present life is so both complicated and rich along that river nile and uh having the opportunity for me personally having the opportunity to interface with the archetypes of the pantheon whether it be an isis or Thoth or Neftis or Ma'at, who stands for truth. She is truth and justice. Um, and all Egyptians in ancient Egypt, actually, she was the one everyone served. Everyone served truth. And I think in the world that's kind of disintegrated a little bit. I, I think truth has gotten fractured. Um, and so um, to be able to understand those energies and also then to be able to understand the real people of real life Egypt today, it's a, it's a profound combination and it's bringing an interesting alchemy both in terms of those inner processes, both for myself and for the Zahra Foundation and for um, the alchemy of transformation that happens well, when you take a plastic bag, for example, and weave it into something beautiful. Um, there's a lot of opportunity, and and so in some ways we get to weave the myth today with every action. You know, as as I and as those who come with me travel through Egypt, teaching the people how to weave. It's not unlike ISIS going through the lands, teaching the people how to weave, and the archetype is the same. The energy and the intention is the same: to heal, to nurture, to help enliven and empower. Um, and so I, I think in some ways we are 
truly just living into an ancient archetype, not that we are Isis, but that we recognize that um, we can embody those qualities and we can um, bring them forth in our actions. And, and when we bring them forth in our actions, then then change can happen and healing can happen. And there's so much healing that needs to happen on this planet. There are so many people who are suffering. Um, and in many cases, perhaps needlessly so. The suffering of our minds is, is a big a big problem. So I don't know if that answered your question, but <laughs> it was a long it, ramble, I realize. And that's all right. It did. Um, so you mentioned you had just come back from a trip, and you have one coming up in... March of next year. Can you maybe yeah. just let us know of some uh, both upcoming trips and, and projects related to the foundation, but also uh-huh. workshops and things um, beyond just the foundation um, in, incorporating the other work that you do? Sure. So I, at this last trip, with, I was doing some work with Zahra for one of the weeks I was there. And then for two of the weeks I was there, I was fortunate to be along with Nikki Scully and Normandy Ellis. Um, Nikki we spoke about earlier and Normandy is an amazing author she's written many books um, about Egypt she's very poetic and she reads the hieroglyphs and then intuits in a very poetic way what they mean Um, and she has a book called uh, Awakening Osiris that is the Egyptian book of the dead um, which is I would highly recommend Uh, I love that book as a bibliomancy kind of book just opening it and reading what, what is right there and how that applies. Um, So I spent two weeks with them and a fabulous group of intrepid travelers uh, as we went through the Nile and various temples and monuments. Um, So upcoming, I will be working just with the Zara Foundation in March, and we are bringing a small team of people with us this time um, to deepen the work that I've begun. And then in the fall of this next year, 2015, Normandy and I will be co-leading a trip to Egypt um, where we will be focusing on the divine feminine and kind of what I was talking about earlier about healing that aspect in ourselves and in our world and meeting many of the Egyptian gods and goddesses as we move along. And Normandy is an excellent uh, writing teacher. She'll be doing um, writing prompts and and workshops helping us work on our spiritual autobiographies. Um, So that will be happening in October of 2015. And I will tag on, and the details are yet to be determined, I'll be doing more work with Zahra when I'm there then. i take every opportunity that I'm in Egypt to work on Zahra. Um, And then fast forwarding up to October of 2016, I'll be leading another Egyptian mysteries tour with a woman named Hope Medford. And she is a, an artist, a drummer, a midwife, and an all-around amazing woman. Um, And she's currently in a band called Medicine for the People. So she and I will be co-leading a trip in two years' time. So that's kind of my upcoming Egypt adventures. And then in January and February, I'll be teaching two alchemical healing classes, an alchemical healing one in January and alchemical healing two in February. And information about those is on my website. Um, and I'm very excited. It's going to be it's going to be good, fun learning, cozying up in the in the winter time here in Oregon. So. And those the alchemical healing workshops are in person workshops there in Eugene. Yes, they are. They are in Eugene, Oregon, here. And, and it's for a, your, a weekend. Uh, and for your um, foundation trips, uh, is there a specific 
requirements or skills that someone has to have in order to be able to to be a part of those? Yeah, that's a good question. We have an application to come on those trips. We only take a few people with us, up to five at the very most, actually, um, because it's not it's not a five star kind of trip. You know, we are doing it on a low budget, and it makes the trips more um, inexpensive than the trips I do with Normandy and with Hope, which are um, they have a private boat and there's private entrances into a number of the temples. And it's pretty fancy. Um, and fabulous. But these trips, you know, we're there to volunteer and to do this volunteer work for the people. Um, and so the cost is quite a bit less. I'm still working out an exact cost. And there's, you have to have a different kind of fortitude and willingness to adjust in a different culture um, and to have plans change and to potentially, you know, end up sleeping in a village in somebody's home. That kind of thing could happen. And the people that come with us on this trip have to have the flexibility to be able to roll with whatever might come our way as we um engage in this work because um, if we get the call that uh, you know there's interest we can do a workshop down the road and in the next oasis then we want to be able to respond to that and, and go do that on the fly so yeah so we have an application and people can request that and then we go through all the applications and we'll determine if it's a good fit or not and, and are the foundation trips um, women only, or can men be on those as well? I didn't know if that would create any sort of an issue since you're mainly working with women there. Yeah. So that's, a, that's also an interesting question that I've been exploring because what happens in some of the more traditional places, if there's men in the room, the veils remain on. If there are no men in the rooms, then the women are able to um, relax a little more because the way the culture is is that if there's a man who's not of their family in the room, then they cover. And if it's a man of their family, they don't need to cover. Um, so we're exploring that. And I think that if we get a couple men who want to come on this trip, then we adjust and we maybe have some time where the men go and experience some of the culture of the men with um, with our contact in Bahareya. Um Something that I didn't touch on that this kind of can bring in really quickly, one of the things we are talking about and showing to the people is this idea of bottle bricks. Now, this isn't something I've developed. You can go on Google and Google bottle bricks and find all sorts of information about it. Nobody's really doing this in Egypt, and so we've been talking and um my guide there is going to be building the first bottle brick building on one of his properties. And so the answer to the how you deal with the man-woman thing, one of the ideas we're having is to have some of the guys go with him to work on the building of this bottle brick home or building that he's going to create and the women go and work doing the crochet with the women and and that's a way that then the women in the workshops the Egyptian women can let down their veil quite literally and um and interact in a more face to face way um 
and I've I've been in workshops with both where they were able to be fully comfortable and take the veils off, and I've been in workshops where I've had women who even had gloves covering her hands and she remained veiled the whole time. And the truth is that I very quickly got over the fact that there was a veil there, and there's a human being, an amazing human being with so much light shining through regardless of how much covering she has on her skin. Um, so if we get some men who want to go and experience some of this work, all the better, you know, all the better. So as we come to the close of our conversation, there is something that I do with each guest, and that is, one, I have a question from a previous guest for you that they didn't know who would be responding, and then I will ask you for a question to pose for a future guest. Okay. So the question from a previous guest, from my guest Nancy Antonucci, um, her question for you is, up to this point in your life, what was the single strongest influence or memory of knowing your true self? Let me just let that question sink in for a minute. You know, I've had a lot, I've been fortunate to have a lot of moments in my life where I've felt connected to my true self. Um, But I got to say that this last trip to Egypt brought me home to my true self in a way that I've never experienced. From the journey of going to the oasis and working with the women and being in going to a wedding there and experiencing that culture to helping Nikki and Normandy and this group through the Egyptian Mysteries tour that we undertook, uh, I arrived more fully into myself and my abilities and my presence in the world than I ever have before. And it was a trip that had amazing highs and some challenges, some deep challenges. And those deep challenges pushed my capacities in ways that I never knew could be pushed. And and in through arriving at those edges, I was able to see myself without um, pretense. And so then when we arrived in the Great Pyramid at the end of our journey, And we held space to have the experience that we had there. Um, We had an evening private visit where we spent two hours in the king's chamber. Um, I had a sense of transparency in the way that um, I was transparent. I was no longer me. I was no longer the group. I was no longer the pyramid or the planet or even the cosmos. I was all of those things. And at the same time, I got the gift and the beauty of having this facet called indigo be a reflection for that vastness that is both without us and within us simultaneously. And it's good to talk about it because it's good to remember it because, of course, then you you move on from a moment and it it becomes a bit like a dream. But um, 
coming to that point in that kind of pinnacle and to arrive in that sense of transparency um, was a really beautiful experience. And it reminds me of a poem I just share really quick. It's roomy, and it's the clear beat in the center changes everything. There are no edges to my loving now. They say there is a window between one soul and the next. But if there are no walls, there are no needs for the window or the latch. And the moment in the pyramid brought me to that place. I became the clear bead in the center. So that's that's the moment that I would answer the question with. Thanks for for that. Wow, that was beautiful. I love Rumi. Um, And so what question would you like to pose for a future guest? I think based on, you know, what I'm doing in the world and the conversation we've had today, what I would like to know from others is what can humanity do to shift its overly wasteful and consumptive tendencies and habits? That's, that's, I want to know what we can do. What can we do? And humanity being the individual, you know, what can I do, what can you do, and what can we do? All right. I like that. It's going to challenge people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for this opportunity to have this conversation today. I'm, I'm very excited about the work I'm doing and, and really um, grateful to get the opportunity to share with you. So, yeah, well, thanks so much. Th- thank you for yes, thank you for taking some time on a Sunday morning to do so. And um, and l- let's just remind people that your website for your personal work is sacredwitness.us. Yep. And I like to think for, of it as us, sacredwitness.us. Dot us. All right. Yeah. And for the foundation, the website is. Is it the Zara Foundation? It is. It's the Zahra Foundation.org. And Zahra is spelled Z A H R A, the Zahra Foundation.org. And there's all sorts of information about what we're doing and pictures, and there's a link there called Projects that talks about all the projects we've done. And um, yeah, so please visit and check it out. All right. And hopefully, maybe even think about taking a trip to Egypt to be part of this work. It's it's a trip of a lifetime or many <laughs> many trips of one lifetime. If, yes. If you get hooked like I have. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much Indigo for being here with us today. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And stay tuned because coming up we will have our Living Well segment with Linda Wiley. And following that is your opportunity to receive a reading live on the air during the show here with me. Uh, And you can do that if you want to get into the queue for that. You can do so by Skyping in from the show page or you can call 646-716-5510 and that will get you into the queue in order to get a reading just a little bit later after the Living Well segment. So stay tuned and we will be back.
I'm Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. A return to this understanding of the truth of food and the value of food within our life. Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it, unhindered, and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley and this is Living Well with Linda. And so it is the end of the year. How fast it seems to have come and then be gone. December has such beautiful, wondrous visions associated with its sweet, magical innocence in the memories of times gone by, fantasies flying around. This gives energy to this now filled with the same gift of life. December is the best of winter months in many ways because winter is new, the snow is fresh, the heart still warm. It's a festive time of year, to be sure. It conjures up the excitement of parties and gatherings, friends and family. Christmas trees, sparkling lights, candles, caroling. Bustling cities, all decorated in lights, beautiful window fronts, decorations. To the deep solitude of the mountain cabin, wood fire burning. The best food, best clothes, dressing up, savoring the blessings of the year. Celebrating the return of the light. Celebrating the many myths and stories that abound at this time of year. At the solstice, the sun, S-U-N, S-O-N, rises, is born anew into the constellation Virgo, the Virgin. And it goes on like that. Some say there is no evidence of a historical person, Jesus. Some say the Bible is a military treaty of the Roman Empire and Caesar a piece of propaganda to get the Jews to wish worship Caesar without them knowing. Religion seems to be about the destruction of the soul, not the saving of it. Lies abound in all of life, and it does us well to look more deeply than the surface for our answers. And the answers, most always, can be found within. And so it is about the return of the light, within and without. Remember that the body goes through the earth cycles too, whether we know it or not, or honor it or not. Honoring makes it so much more rich and deeply satisfying, rewarding. We honor it by accepting it, by being with it as it is, experiencing the deep offering of each moment. As we go about setting our intentions for the new year and saying goodbye to the old, know that for any resolution to be successful, You will have to look within. You must see where the glitches are that keep you from being successful. See the false beliefs that keep us locked into our filtered reality, 
that is always reflecting back our release. For as within, so without. Change your mind, change your world is also true, and doing and following through is very empowering. But it takes effort, determination, integrity, honesty, deep seeing of self, love and acceptance to see what is and let it go. Remembering who we are is key to freedom. So let us celebrate the return of the light, the mystery, and awe of this place we call Earth, Home, Mother, Gaia. Let us remember to love one another and help one another to realize that without community, there is no life. To deeply care for the Earth and each other, that no one shall be without home, food, medical. How could we have ever let this happen in the first place? This is a deep question to ask yourself. For without the gift of the heart, all is lost. Balance is not achieved. Let us see that it is time to stand together, men and women as equals, together, making this a place of truth, balance, harmony, fair share for all. That no tribe member is left out. Again, how could this ever happen? We have wandered far into the desert of life. It's time to turn around. Celebrate what is real in life. Dream the new dream where all are equal. Honor life, your life, and live in accordance. Honor winter's offering to look within, to get in touch with who we are. For seeds sprout in the dark of the rich soil and compost. This is life. May the light of this season fill your heart with love to overflowing, blessing the year to come. May peace and brotherhood be lived in the deep gratitude for this unfolding mystery that we are. May we all awaken to the message of the heart calling out in so many ways. May we once again remember what it means to truly care for one another in the earth. And as we do this, all divisions melt into the nothingness that they are, and we find our way again as common humanity. This truth releases all lives, and we live again. Keep warm on the inside and outside. Inside by using warming herbs and spices, curries, cinnamon, cloves, nutmeg, cardamom, garlic, onions, ginger. All these herbs and spices have healing properties. So using them often offers support for the body. Baked winter squash is warming and soothing. Mashed with butter and brags, topped with green onions and parmesan. Served with quinoa, sautéed greens, and assorted winter veggies with onions and garlic. Topped with green onions, a bit of feta and brags. Add some beans if you like. It's a delicious, warming, comforting, healing, tasty, satisfying meal. Simple, clean food at its best, the way nature intended it to be. Use extra cream on the face and body. The cold is very drying as in dehydrating so we also need to drink lots of water. Make it warm with ginger and lemon. This is cleansing and warming. A warm lemon and ginger tea in the morning is also a great way to start the day. I have been making my smoothies in the morning now with fresh raw apple juice and greens, 
and a dash of ginger juice. It's delicious, because unless you live in the tropics, the only fruit there is right now is your saved apples. And therefore, it's the seasonal thing to do. I also suggest watching some fun seasonal movies with family and friends. There are many that open the heart and tell the truth. Noel was one I just watched the other night with Susan Sarandon and Penelope Cruz. It's a vignette of some people's lives at Christmas. It's very touching and heartwarming. The Miracle on 34th Street is a classic along with White Christmas with Bing Crosby. The book that I recommend this month is The Dream Book by Betty Bethard. This is one of the best dream book interpretation helpers that I've come across. It's about helping with our inner journey. to dream away, to dream the new dream, that all may come to pass that is of the heart. For it is the season to enjoy and celebrate and connect from the heart with all we meet. Starting in the new year, we will delve into specific topics such as vaccinations, insurance, the law, the matrix, speak of time, speak of quantum physics, explore some outer reaches. I look forward to sharing these topics with you. In the meantime, I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I wish you a Merry Christmas. I wish you a Merry Christmas. Christmas. And remember, it's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. It's only a dream. Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at prestia.com. Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey.
And welcome back. I'm Hi C, and you're listening to Revolution. And we have reached that point in the show where you have an opportunity to receive a reading live on the air. <clears throat> if you would like to get into the Q4 reading, you can do so by either Skyping in from the show page or you can call 646 716 5510, and that will also allow you to get into the queue. <clears throat> so we will move to our first person calling in, and this is someone calling from area code 972. Well, Are you there? Hi. Hello. Yes. What's your name and oh. where are you calling from? This is LaShondra, and I'm in Texas. Welcome to the show. And what is it that you'd like for us to look at for you today? Um, this guy, um, his name is Carlin, C-A-R-L-I-N, and we are friends. And I'm trying to see if it would grow into something more, into a relationship. Okay. What's the day and month of your birth? 628. Right. And you want him? Um, yes, but hold on just a second. Let me calculate something for you first. So, okay. 628. And what is his? July 13th. Okay. Well, there are either either there are some challenges to making this into a successful relationship, um, or there are some things that are severely blocking and getting in the way of that being able to happen. Um, and I would say it may be more on his side than on your side. But <clears throat> the reason I asked the birth dates is to calculate year cards, year numbers, mm-hmm. and um, he. Because he's in a nine year, which corresponds to the hermit card, there mm-hmm. is a sense, I, I would anticipate that he may not be overly ready to move into fully a new relationship until later in next year, because nine is a number of completion. So it may show that there are some things that he's needing to tie up to finish to bring to closure and completion in order to be completely it's kind of like tying up all the loose ends in order to be completely Mm -hmm. free or available to engage in a new relationship fully and completely Um, and the cards that came up you know the card for you is the reverse death card don't panic about that Um, the card for him is the reversed ten of wands and the card for the relationship is the reversed ten of swords the Ten of Swords, rever- and just means that all the cards came up upside down when I say reversed. And then the, the reversed yeah. aspect can indicate that there are obstacles or blockages or delays of some sort, or that there's just some major hurdles to get over because all of the cards are upside down. Um, and, you know, the Ten of Swords reversed for the relationship would say that there are some um, serious issues that are still... Um, impeding the relationship to be able to move forward or be what it wants to be. And once those have fallen away or once those have been removed, then we can start moving into something new. Uh, But the Ten of Wands for him being reversed can indicate that he's, it can indicate that he's overwhelmed. 
mm-hmm. um, and that he just needs some time to regather himself. If you, if, it's kind of like he needs to recharge. He needs to come through and kind of sort out what something he has been through, how it's affected him, and all of that. He just kind of needs to figure that out and go through that process before being able to fully engage in a relationship as in the way that you may want. Um, yeah, I was getting ready to pull back uh, because he told me that he was moving. He uh, was thinking about moving to Atlanta, moving back to Atlanta. And I don't want to, you know, I don't, do you see that a move for him to Atlanta? Well, yes, because I would see that he may see that as a way of lessening the pressure he's feeling right now on himself or in his life, that mm-hmm. somehow Atlanta represents something that's easier or less complicated or whatever. And so, and being in a nine year and a hermit year, it says that he's kind of focused on what he needs to do for himself right now. Mm-hmm. And so you pulling back would actually in some ways be healthy for you because it says it gives him the space to breathe and to do what he needs to do for himself rather than feeling pressured to make decisions about what to do or when to do it because he has to now take into account you or a relationship as part of that process. Um, And what he really needs right now is some alone time Mm -hmm. in order to kind of figure his own stuff out and figure his own life out. And it wouldn't be the most auspicious time or beneficial time for you to be engaging in a more serious relationship with him. Okay. So you do see him moving to Atlanta? It it seems as if it's something he's seriously considering because he needs that, he needs to feel like there's less pressure or less complication to deal with right now in his life and that that somehow is going to make it easier for him. Whether that's because he has a support system there or it's someplace he's familiar with or whatever the reason is, but it does seem to indicate that he's going to move in that direction to wherever it feels easiest for him right now. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for calling in. You're welcome. Enjoy your day. So from Texas, let's see where we're going to go to. We're going to go to someone calling from area code 719. Hi. Hello. What's your name and where are you calling from? I'm Julia, and I'm calling from Colorado. Colorado. Well, welcome to the show. Mm -hmm. What is it that you'd like for us to look at for you today? Um, I'm in the process of divorce, and I'm calling to see how you see that going and when you see it being final. And my birthday is September 16th. September 16th. All right. So. Okay. So the nice thing is that you've entered into what's called a temperance year. And um, temperance is a card that can indicate when things start to even out or balance out a bit or things seem to start to flow more smoothly and easily. So if nothing else, I think that's a nice indication as an overall theme or energy for the year because for what you're dealing with and going through right now, you probably will <laughs> would welcome things kind of flowing a little bit easier and more smoothly. 
Yeah. Um, and so the the divorce process itself doesn't seem to hit a lot of snags, which is good. The Queen of Pentacles is here. Um, so one thing that the Queen of Pentacles is showing is you don't need to um, weaken your stance or it's kind of like hold your ground and you will be able to likely get what it is that you are wanting or needing from the process uh, as long as you are strong and practical. Don't ask for more, you know, don't overdo it and things will go far more smoothly. Um, but Queen of Pentacles is really nice to see here because it does seem to indicate that you seem to... Think of Queen of Pentacles like um, I'm sitting comfortably and pretty in my world. So it seems as if you kind of move through this relatively easily and you seem to come out of it getting what it is that you need from it, especially with Pentacles being in the material sense. Um, and... Four of Swords does come up here in the, the short term, and sometimes the Four of Swords is a card of postponement or delay, so it could indicate that there is a short-lived delay to something. So I would anticipate that if like if there was a, a date that was initially given for when it would be finished, this would indicate that there would probably be something that causes some sort of a, a delay or a postponement from that date. But the Nine of Wands follows that, so it's not a long delay it's not something that goes on forever it's um uh, like nine of wands if we looked at that for the next fire sign that would put us into aries which is march to april more or less um and the four of swords which would be an air sign would say that we may encounter the postponement or the delay in the air sign which would be aquarius and aquarius is end of January and, and into February. So I would anticipate that it probably will be completed by spring, mid-spring, with that Nine of Wands, if we want to think of Aries. Uh, the Nine would push it towards the end of Aries, so we're just going to say mid-spring. <laughs> um, okay. There there may be something that seems as if it's going to, to be finished a bit sooner, but there's probably something that will cause it to get delayed or pushed out just a bit, but not for very long. Okay. Does that sound in any way feasible for a time period for where you are right now in the process? Yeah, I was just, you know, the sooner the better for me, but yeah. Okay. I mean, that's to me, it's not that long. I mean, it's only like four months, <laughs> you know, roughly. Uh, yeah. From now, so it's it's not it, it doesn't seem to indicate that it's a long process. Just that there may be kind of a a false end, where you mm. think it's going to finish, and then something happens to kind of push it out. But it's not going to push it out for a, a, a very long period of time, maybe just a okay. month or two at the most. All right, but overall, it seems like it'll go well for me. Yes, <clears> especially <throat> with the Queen of Pentacles in there. That the, plus the Four of Swords being there. If we looked at it differently from just looking at the timing aspect, the Four of Swords would say. Um, we're probably going to find that fairly quickly we're able to sleep easily or our mind will be at ease. Um, and the Nine of Wands indicates 
finishing or accomplishing something and coming out of it successfully. So there's a lot here that indicates you moving through this process successfully and coming out at the other end feeling comfortable or feeling at ease with the way things have gone and the way things have, have turned out uh, in the end. Um, so I don't, it doesn't seem to indicate any sort of real big hiccups or blow-ups or challenges or anything like that, which to me is a good thing. Um, so, so I don't think that you're looking at an overly arduous or difficult process and that you will okay. end up coming out of it feeling comfortable and feeling at ease with the way it's gone and the way that it ends up turning out. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's good news. Thank you. I appreciate that. You are more than welcome. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Have a great rest of the weekend. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. So that's going to bring us to the close of our show. I want to thank you for tuning in and listening today. And, of course, you can listen anytime to any of the past shows, both this one as well as any of the others under Firefly Willow's uh, L-I-V-E channel by either going to the archives in Blog Talk, which is blogtalkradio.com slash Firefly Willows Live, or you can find them on iTunes. Just do a quick search for Firefly Willows Live, and you'll find all of the shows there that you can listen to, download, or subscribe to as the podcast if you want to just get them automatically. I will be here again in January, January 11th. This show, Revolution, airs every second Sunday of each month. So I will hope that you might be joining once again to listen in and perhaps even call in and join the conversation. You can always join the conversation, give your comments, feedback, questions at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. And I wish everyone a wonderful holiday season. I hope that it is enjoyable, safe, and that you move into the new calendar year feeling refreshed, inspired, and ready to take on the next step or the next phase of your life. So until then, thank you for listening, and we will look forward to being with you again next month. Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host Ticey Lutmers, brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with C. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Caracella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lisney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. Mm-hmm.